Sea Stars Podcast, where space meets ocean. everyone and welcome to the Sea Stars podcast. I am so excited for the guests that we have on today. Today we have with us is Dr. Allison Hindle, who is the co-founder of Leap Biosystems and an assistant professor at University of Nevada, Las Vegas. So I'm super excited about the research you do with respect to ocean animals and you have lots of a background in space. So welcome to the podcast. Thanks. It's great to be able to join you. So I was wondering if you could just tell us a little bit about your research and how it applies to ocean animals. Sure, sure. So I'm I'm a biologist, a zoologist by training, and I study the physiology of animals that are specialized to live in extreme and interesting environments all over the planet. And one of the main systems that I study is diving mammals. I do pretty much all my work with seals and they're so incredibly specialized to be able to live and thrive in their ocean environments. So I'm really interested in how they're able to hold their breath as long as they do, how they do that without complications, and then also how our impacts on the ocean might be shaping their habitats. How do you go about like researching and studying a seal? (laughs) Yeah, well, (laughs) I get asked this a lot. Also, I grew up in Manitoba and now I work in Las Vegas. So um, people ask me how I I managed to do this without being on the coast. Um, So actually, a lot of the work that I do with the animals themselves, you travel to where they are, as you might imagine. There's not a lot of like picking up the seal and maybe driving him back to your university to do an experiment. I mean, that definitely happens, but I mean, you can see how that's like a whole different sort of, sort of situation. So, um, (laughs) so we do a lot of different things with these animals. Um, We spend a lot of time figuring out how we can measure things while they're in their environment. You know, we, we are interested in this time of their lives when they are least able to be observed by us, when they're deep in the ocean and far from shore. So there are a lot of technologies and there's a lot of exciting technology development that's going on that helps us take, like I study physiology, so I wanna take like a heart rate monitor or a blood pressure transducer or something that we would use in the human clinic to study you know, human physiology, we want to be able to modify those to put them out on animals to be able to learn what they're doing in their own habitat. So I do a bunch of that stuff. And then I also work with blood samples and tissue samples and cell lines and various things that we can take back to the lab so that we can try to understand sort of how their molecular biology also supports these amazing feats that they're capable of. Absolutely. And so that's what I'm so interested in because we're also mammals and we can't dive like a seal does. So how does that happen? What's going on in there that supports that? Well, we can do a little bit of what the seal does. You know, most of what the seal can do is encoded in all of us. You know, so when you think about what a seal does, um, when you go underwater, when we go underwater, free divers, seals, anything, turtles, like this is conserved in vertebrates, you hold your breath, obviously, because if you don't, that's just drowning. 
Um, and <laughs> the big physiological change that happens when we go underwater is that our heart rates slow down. And that helps reduce the speed of blood flowing around your whole body and reduces the amount of oxygen that your body's tissues are using that helps you stay underwater longer. So we do that also. Seals are just way better at it than we are. Um, so it's all of these, it's a bunch of these little details that kind of help them to do what they do. They can tolerate much lower levels of oxygen in their blood than we can. They have more extreme cardiovascular changes that, that, that cause their blood oxygen levels to drop lower than ours can. Right. And I would assume the primary reason for diving is for food? Yeah, they, they really interact underwater um, with most of the activities of their lives. You know, they interact with other seals underwater. They, you know, some species of seal breed. Whales certainly are breeding in the water. Um, whales are giving birth in the water. They're foraging and they're migrating. That's amazing. And how long do seals hold their breath for? Oh, well, that depends on the seal. <laughs> <laughs> they so probably have was, personal bests and everything on their yeah, themselves. Yeah. I mean, we do joke a little bit about the zoology Olympics because of course we are very interested in understanding it's it's very captivating to think about the extremes and the deepest and the longest. Um, so that that always gets people excited when we can see extreme feats in these animals. I work primarily with Weddell seals in Antarctica and elephant seals now in California, and they can they are some of the best diving seals. Um, so they're able to hold their breath, you know, 20 minutes, an hour. Wow. A long time. That's incredible. And is that primarily due to the cold temperature of the water that helps them slow down the, the blood flow or like what adds to that? Well, um, you know, that's might be a factor, but let's remember that these are just like us warm blooded mammals. So they don't like to drop their body temperature too terribly much um, because that's that's a big cost and can get you into um, can get you into biological trouble. Yeah, too losing, <laughs> losing limbs and such. Yeah, you know, it's not 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 ideal. Um, so um, so one of the things that they have that helps them is a pretty impressive storage of oxygen in their body. So we bind oxygen in our blood and our muscles, right? Using hemoglobin and myoglobin. And they have a lot of both of those things. So when they go underwater, they are just taking with them more oxygen. And then you combine that with a little bit better ability to regulate your cardiovascular system, to lower your heart rate further than we can. So then that helps you to conserve that really massive oxygen store that you've brought with you and then combine that with a molecular ability to tolerate lower levels of blood oxygen than we can. Um, all of those things together just help them stay underwater a lot longer. Is there any difference depending on the age of the seal? Uh, there's certainly a difference between baby seals and adult seals. Um, unlike whales, you know, seals are all going to be born on land. So they do have to learn how to dive. And there is, um, that's a kind of a whole line of research is trying to figure out how exactly they mature physiologically to to allow them to dive for as long as they do. Um, but then as animals get older and older, you know, no, there doesn't seem to be too much of a, an age effect on their abilities or at least their behavior. Because uh, I've never been in the biology world. That's completely out of my, my element. So um, 
if so you you take you take these seals and you observe them as they're diving and you acquire data that you then take back to the lab and you you analyze that but so that data you get by putting sensors on them as they dive or is it a physically you're sending like a rover down to watch them dive no, we we put the computer right on the seals. So sort of imagine okay. a pretty, well, I don't want to use the word fancy, a, less, a, a more elaborate Fitbit that's capable of going to the bottom of the ocean. Okay. So we can record things like heart rate. The accelerometry will tell us the orientation of the animal and how fast it's swimming and kind of like a step counter for seals only, you know, we need to work a little harder <laughs> on the algorithms right. that help yeah. us entangle, um, disentangle all of that data. Um, and then whatever else we're interested in measuring. So, but the key or like, and I guess this all, the, the very core of this technology is something called a time depth recorder. So where you have animals going down to the bottom of the ocean or wherever they're going underwater. Um, and so we can, we want to know how deep they are at any given time. That's going to help us to tease apart all the little bits of, does this change happen when they're swimming fast at the bottom, catching fish? Does this change happen when they're descending or ascending? You know, when we think about human scuba divers, a lot of the big physiological changes and the things that we pay attention to for dive tables are how gases are changing on the ascent. So we want might want to know at what point all of these other things we're measuring are happening. So this very basic thing is, is essentially on every single... Um, technology that we'll put on a seal this time depth recorder. So it it's counting, it's got a clock and a pressure sensor. Okay. And so we know always how deep the animal is. And when you kind of like watch that trace of an animal going up and down and up and down, you know what kind of type of diving they're doing. Is it is it real-time transmitting or do you have to recover them after? We do have to recover them after. Okay. You know, it's possible. I'm sure we've all heard of those, you know, tracking wildlife and we can get data back through satellites. And that is very true. But the, the bandwidth that's available for wildlife data um, through satellites is pretty small. And physiological data, if anyone's really thought, looked, looked at the guts of their foot Fitbit, um, a lot of those parameters are being measured many, many times a second. Yeah. So it's just simply the resolution of the data is too high. You can't transmit it. So we do have to go find that animal again, find our expensive <laughs> seal and, and get the computer off of it, which also we think the seal appreciates because then they don't have to wear this stuff yeah. for very long. <laughs> right. Yeah. And what you just mentioned about divers and having to be so cognizant of dive tables and whatnot, are seals not prone to that sort of sickness? What is the deal there? Well, that's actually a, that is another field of study. And that's something that we're really interested in, right? How are they, how are they able to avoid decompression sickness or the bends? So I think one big way that they have an advantage is that they're not breathing underwater. So they're diving on one lung full of air. And so they're not continuing to accumulate gases. Primarily, we worry about nitrogen for human divers, right? They're not continuing to accumulate nitrogen in their tissues, which is much more soluble at deeper and deeper depths. Um, so by just having this one lung full of air and not taking a tank down with you, they are protected. They, but they have a couple other really cool strategies. Um, and the main one is that a lot of species of deep divers 
actually allow their chest cavity allow they are <laughs> their anatomy <laughs> this is like a physics thing this isn't a behavior choice thing yeah. um, their chest cavity will collapse under pressure and so it'll squish and that forces the air out of your lungs up into your trachea which is rigid and gas exchange doesn't occur there so it actually keeps more nitrogen from diffusing out of the lungs and into the tissues to help protect them from the bends. Like all of that said, we do still worry about a reason that whales strand. One of the big hypotheses for how, why and how whales strand is that maybe they are experiencing some kind of like gas trauma event deep underwater, you know, possibly from being scared or a sonar pulse that they might experience. There's a lot of concern that that could be happening because when you see whales, sometimes when you see whales wash up on shore, they have really big gas emboli in their bodies, which is, which would be diagnosed as the bends. Wow. I Crazy. Yeah. And uh, I mean, I've never, I've never dove before, so I don't, I, you've dove a ton. Um, I guess people can't, can't gain the same benefits or a percentage of the same benefits because our, our um, like rib cages are so rigid. Right. And that's right. where the difference is. Yeah. Yes. Well, and, and also <laughs> um, our lungs are much more sensitive. Um, so when your lungs collapse and, and then re are re-expanded in the hospital, it's usually when that might happen um, and you get fixed up, there is a lot of lung damage because our lungs are really, really sensitive tissues. Um, so something that we think we could potentially learn from seals is what makes their lung tissue so resilient to this compression and re-expansion. That's fascinating. You had mentioned earlier as well that you study some of like the changes of the environment and how that affects seals as well. I'm just curious if you can talk about that. Sure. Um, well, I just do a little piece of this, but we as a, as a like group of scientists, as a field, one of the things that we do really worry about is disturbance um, in any environment. And in the ocean, I think the, one of the primary ways that animals can be disturbed is through sound. Sound travels well, and many of the ocean animals, like the whales, um, they have um, they have great hearing and really complex social structures that rely on communication through sound. Even across ocean basins, big whales can be talking to each other. So when we do more things in the ocean, recreation, oil and gas exploration, you know, all the things that we're continuing to do because it's important for us to grow the marine economy. Um, we are being loud. We're always loud. Humans are pretty much always loud, right? Yeah. <laughs> it's not our fault. It's just how we are. Um, so we are really interested in understanding how different species might react to noises. You know, how loud is too loud? How close is too close? and what happens. So we are doing a study right now, um, working with elephant seals, where we're measuring their physiology while they're at sea and trying to track physiological changes against their exposure to sound while they're diving, just to understand in this species what their responses are going to be and how vulnerable they might be. So when you say we are doing that, is that the 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 scientific community we or your group oh, we? That, yes that is a project that i am involved in so okay. myself and collaborators yeah and so currently you're studying elephant seals but you've also studied seals in antarctica which i mean that sounds amazing i what is field research in antarctica like <laughs> <laughs> well i used to joke that i was i have 
very good from an early age training to be able to do research in Antarctica because I grew up in Winnipeg. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's fair. Right. When you get off the plane in Antarctica, you're like, oh my gosh, it's exactly the same as coming home for Christmas, except there's mountains in the distance. Yeah. Um, It's just kind of flat and white and windy. (laughs) Um, So it's really doing research in Antarctica is so amazing because you just, you, you know, when you're when you're going to work at a university every day or going to work anywhere, you're you're essentially going to the office, right? Like I love the job that I do, but you drive, you get, you wake up in your house, you drive your car to work, you do your, you sit at a desk most of the time. Let's be honest, um, and then you drive home at the end of the day. When you're in the field anywhere, but particularly somewhere that you had to travel far to get to, like Antarctica, you're just immersed in the work that you're doing. And you're out there in the environment with the animals, which is so special to be able to see them behaving and to watch them um, just in their natural habitat. It's so extremely cool. How how close is your camp to them? Like, are you, you said you're immersed in it, but like how... Yeah. So depending on the type of project you're doing, a lot of the work that we do um, or that I have done in the past, we've been able to live at base, which is about 12 miles. It's about a 45 minute skidoo ride from where a lot of the seals, where a lot of the seal colonies are. So we would essentially commute to work, um, except instead of driving your car, you would drive a snowmobile and get out there and work with the animals for the day and then take the samples back to the lab like blood samples or whatever health assessments we were doing or other physiological measurements we would be collecting from the animals. Um, So you do spend the whole day out there, you know, with no, with nothing, you know, in a parka um, (laughs) trying to make sure that your stuff doesn't freeze. So you get really good at figuring out which pockets inside and outside um, you need to put all your very important things, you know, so I need to put my like blood collection tubes, you know, in the middle pocket because we want to keep them a little bit warm, but still a little bit chilled. You know, my chocolate bar can go on the outside because that's actually tastier when it's frozen. You know, it's just, it's just a kind of different way of, of, of going to work. And planning those kind of trips too. you, like you, every pound really matters, right? To, well, you... yeah, just a little bit, but it's more it's, <laughs> going to Antarctica. Um, I would say the most important um, strategy for packing is the realization that you cannot get anything um, right. if it's broken, if you forgot it. So we use a lot of checklists. We do a lot of dry runs. Um, we use a lot of redundancies as best we can, you know, and then, you know, yes, also your baggage is going to be weighed. So you're going to have to work within the limits of whatever the aircraft is or, or whatever is taking you to the ice. And so with choosing Antarctica, is there uh, a specific reason you chose these seals and is there specific times a year that you go? Yeah, we, so it all comes back to needing to get that fancy computer back from the seal. So there's actually not that many places in the world where you can reliably catch the same seal a second time. Oh, no kidding. (laughs) Yeah, that'd be be tricky. So yeah, if you think about seals that you would see in Halifax and the harbors, um, you can't, they're hard to catch in the water. They all, you also need to catch them on land because they are, 
way better at swimming than you are. So you're never going to win that battle in the water. Um, so we need to find places where the animals will come and haul out. So in, um, in Antarctica, this group of Weddell seals, which is um, very well studied because they are very accessible. Kind of seems weird, but that's just how it is. So these seals give birth on land, right? And in Antarctica, that's on the ice, on the fast ice, usually ice that is kind of attached to the land. And so they come in from the sea to the ice edge, and then they're really great divers and swimmers. So they swim under the ice towards the continent and they can breathe at little cracks in the ice. They're really good at making their own holes to breathe. And they just, you know, breathe and then keep swimming and then breathe and then just keep swimming. So they can come in pretty far under the ice. And then eventually um, this area where we work, it's a set of little tiny islands. And islands, you know, even in Antarctica, even though the ocean's mostly frozen, it still has tides. So the ice and the frozen ocean is raising up and down every day. And that makes pretty reliable cracks around the islands, these tidal cracks. So there are these really reliable, safe places for the animals to know they'll be able to get out of the water. And so they'll come into these colony areas around these islands and they'll have their pups um, and they stay in the region, you know, so now all the females are there having their pups. So now all the males show up because, okay, this is also going to be breeding season. And then all the females without pups show up because, okay, this is going to be breeding season. So all the seals are in this area for a couple of weeks. So if we were to put a computer on one of those seals, they can still go underwater under the ice and still hunt fish, but they will come back kind of in this area and we'll be able to get our computer back before they, they go on with their lives. That makes so much sense. What is the return rate of getting those computers back? It's pretty high, actually. Uh, I actually think we've only lost two in wow. oh. seven years of of me doing it. Um, and we knew where they were, and they just came. They just like went on a little joyride, <laughs> a little <laughs> too far away. And we work um, because we work in this time of year when we have to travel to the seals over the ice. We have to leave when the ice gets too soft so we middle of antarctic summer which is around christmas time we um we have to stop working and so they came back like just kind of after new year's to our study area so we missed them did you also have to gain knowledge about being an ice expert as well like was that or is that someone else that that joins the team that says oh there this is where we go and and stuff most scientists who do work in the field actually are the experts on the environments that they work in just through experience. So you're right. We do sometimes bring experts with us. And so we definitely talk about things like safety and working on the sea ice all the time. But for me, I started to do projects in Antarctica as a graduate student. And so I learned so much from my, my like, PhD supervisor who had been working there for decades um, right. and knows a lot. So you do kind of learn through doing um, and experiencing. And then part of now taking my own graduate students there is to pass on that knowledge. What an incredible opportunity. Yeah. yeah like that is so cool. That's, the... that's just such an interesting process for, for gaining knowledge and then like really understanding it adding your own perspective and then passing that on. Like that's, uh, I love that. 
thoughts. It's great. And it's one of the reasons that I do what I do. And, you know, and for a biologist, it's just such a privilege to have the opportunity to work in the habitat where your study animal lives. Just you, you just think about them and their capabilities and your scientific questions so much differently than if you never see them ever, you need yeah. you know, just you come up with new ideas and you just have a broader understanding. So I, I think it's always really important to get outside I mean, just in general, but um, particularly if you're studying an animal somewhere far flung in the world, um, it's kind of important to see it with your own eyes. And so for studying elephant seals, is that because of the same retrievability factor? Exactly. It is. So elephant seals, like, like all seals, they, they do a couple things every year on land that they're just too hard or too cold to do in the water. So they have pups on land and they molt. So every year, you know, birds do this also, but many marine organisms like grow new fur feathers. Um, the marine environment is harsh. There's a lot of ultraviolet radiation that they're exposed to, and they need that fur coat or feathers, if you're a bird, to stay warm in the cold water. So they grow, they they get a new coat every year. Um, and elephant seals do this on land over a period of a couple weeks. And so if you work in this very defined time of year, um, you could take an animal from a beach, put your computer on it, and then we actually put these juvenile elephant seals in a truck um, and we drive them to the other side of Monterey Bay. Oh, cool. And we let them go. And what is supposed to happen and what usually happens is that they will swim back to the beach where you borrowed them from. Mm. Um, and Monterey is this really, Monterey Bay is this really great location to do it because the Monterey Submarine Canyon bisects the bay. So they're going to just beeline back to the beach but they have to dive over this really deep water canyon to get there. Um, so oh. you can get some really deep dives from these elephant seals in that really short period of time. Oh, interesting. That's like a guaranteed experiment with results. Then. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, with, yeah, I mean, I, yes, <laughs> as far as far in as science can ever be yeah. guaranteed to have results. Right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's reasonably safe. Uh, yeah, definitely. I could, you know, a whole other a whole other episode could be all the ways your sites could go wrong. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, we, should, we should have one of those. Yeah. You might. That could be a lot of fun. I think yeah. there's, uh, there's a lot of trading stories that folks who work in the field could do or, or folks that work anywhere can do. There's a yeah. lot of stuff that can go wrong. <laughs> yeah. I especially imagine with, with anything like you were saying about working in, in remote areas, just something breaks you'll find out pretty soon if it's something you really rely on or if you, if it breaks and you're like, okay, that's, that's probably fine. Oh, so, yeah. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. And it's kind of sounds like a joke, but I, the number of, <laughs> the number of important scientific devices that I have constructed with a coat hanger and duct tape is actually <laughs> kind of long list. Yeah. There, there's a reason that the like international space station has duct tape on it. <laughs> oh, <it's>, oh, yes, <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Oh, that's for sure. I have to say you picked two very cool areas to study seals. I know it's that retrievability factor, but uh, 
great places to do research. Yeah, I think so. I think so. Yeah. And it's, you know, one of the other things that I love about my job is that, you know, you don't work with, these are large predators. You do not work with them by yourself. Right. You know, it really takes teams. And so um, I, I'm really lucky in that I've got great collaborators who are also my friends and that we, you know, get to go and do these cool science projects together. It's, it's really awesome. I would love if you could tell us a story, maybe just pick one. It sounds like where something went really wrong during field research. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. Well, give me just a second um, yeah. because, you know, there's a lot, you know, and some of them are funnier than others. So maybe I want to pick one that's not totally depressing. Um, but I guess like, you know, everything goes wrong and it's just some. Some days all the things happen at once. And I guess some days they don't, you know, like everything from vehicles not working to you show up and the battery's dead on this like one thing that you have to bring that needs to work and is the whole reason that you're there. Um, so I guess for our elephant seal project, we we just kind of had everything happen that could have happened, I think. So we had several years to do the project and we just kind of finished our third field season. So I can, maybe it's starting to be a good story because it actually finally worked. <laughs> okay, um, but, yeah. <laughs> but we have, um, you know, I mentioned that, you know, you always have this time depth recorder on the animals so that you can understand what they're doing in the context of all the measurements that you're making. And then you have other computers that are measuring physiology, like heart rate or blood oxygen or temperature of the animal. And then you also have um, computers that are measuring the motion of the animal, the, the Fitbit part, the accelerometry. And so I guess the, this, the project, it was, it just almost became hilarious because we could not get any, we could not get all of the things to work at the same time. <laughs> or like amazing heart rate data and the time depth recorder failed. So we have no idea where the animal was when this amazing heart rate data was happening. <laughs> or like, you know, we were, every time the animal heard a noise and, 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 and changed its position, it was breaking something on our instrument. So we could never actually measure any physiology after the animal did something in response to the noise. So finally, finally, I mean, uh, <laughs> finally, we were able to get a set of animals this year where all the things worked at the same time. Nice. <laughs> so I guess that's that's my victory for 2021. I should just second. No I kidding. Just and that, that's just. Year off. Yeah. Yeah, you've earned it. Yeah, just take the rest <laughs> off. That way. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So was it was it primarily just like the technology aspect was was just unreliable or or like, <laughs> like who, who's uh, to blame? Well, right? I guess I'm gonna just flip that around and make it sound a little better. Okay. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. <laughs> when you're innovating new technology. Um, you will always expose the fail points. Yeah. And we do a lot to expose those fail points in the lab before we ever do any work on seals. But, you know, there's a lot of just stuff in the environment that you can't simulate. Um, so I, I, just, I, I just think we were trying to do a lot of pretty novel stuff. Um, and so then you just 
sometimes you get lucky <laughs> and everything's all working at the same time. I can only imagine I did some research on deep sea sponges, but in a lab and some of the things that come up, for example, when we were exposing them to a predator, I didn't actually think the predator would escape the tube that I had it in. I just <laughs> like that was unexpected. Yeah. So. <laughs> you plan and you plan and you plan some more and you plan some more, but like they, you know, whatever. Yeah. People and then a seal say, does a know. back rub on like a rock or something. And <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yes, exactly, exactly. You know, no, no plan ever survives contact with reality. <laughs> Very yeah. true. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> so you're originally from Manitoba. Mm-hmm. How did you end up in this field of study? Well, I was always interested in the water. You know, we have a fair bit of that in Manitoba, and I spent a lot of my high school and university years canoeing and out on our lakes. Uh, And I was just really, I was, I learned how to scuba dive um, in freshwater. (laughs) Pretty much everything I've done since then has been better than that. So that was a good place to start. Um, and I just was, I became really interested in these animals that could, that could operate in this environment so naturally. Um, so I actually, there was a, a, a physiologist who studied diving at the University of Manitoba, um, Dr. Bob MacArthur, and I did a master's in his lab studying the prairie seal, um, the muskrat, and trying to understand <laughs> heart rate and body temperature and diving. Yeah, so I, I got my start right at home in Manitoba, and then I went and did my PhD at a university in the U.S. Um, with the hope that I would be able to do a project in Antarctica, and it all kind of went from there. Wow. That is so cool. I think because we have some listeners who may have never seen the ocean before, especially for folks who are landlocked. So I always love hearing how people who are from the prairies or other landlocked areas end up in marine biology and other areas of marine science. Yeah, I think it's, you know, it's, it can, anyone can do this really, you know, it don't, it's, it is, of course, it's lovely if you've, you know, live somewhere that is by the ocean and you can see it every day um, and you can definitely have different experiences, but there's absolutely no reason that you cannot love and study and visit the ocean whenever you can. But I think it's so powerful that everybody is connected to the ocean, even when you're somewhere landlocked and seeing your own field um, and be able to progress in a career when you're from somewhere that you're not by the ocean. Yeah. And I was lucky that I was able to, I, I think I was lucky that I was able to do what I loved and that I was able to make the link from freshwater uh, divers um, to some of the most extreme divers in the world. Um, but it's it's all like, like going back full circle to the very beginning of this conversation. We are all mammals and it's in all of us. Yeah, that's that's exactly that's exactly yeah. it. Right. That it's you're you're studying something so specific, but it's so transferable. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us today. I've learned so much both about seals and about their abilities to dive so deep and so much food for thought here as well. And I am so excited for our next episode. And for those of you listening, we're going to pivot on what we're talking about a little bit. uh, And we're going to go much higher up than uh, the deep sea. Much much higher and much deeper. (laughs) 
So join us next week for another episode with Dr. Allison Hindle. Thank you for listening to the Sea Stars podcast. If you have any questions, send them to us on email, Instagram, or Twitter. And thank you to our producer, Steph. Our music is by Jesse Rusk, and our art is by Niamh McMaster.